And anytime they start talking about making wine or drinking wine, they get a gleam in their eyes. In fact, uh, they have a, a magnet on the fridge, I told you, somebody about it before, that says wine is proof that God loves you and he wants you to be happy. <laughs> and wine has had a, a long history in the world. We don't know exactly when it was discovered, but we know that it's found in the earliest pages of Scripture. Um, places like Psalm 104 tells us that wine is a gift that can gladden our hearts and bring joy. But, of course, God also in Scripture tells us to exercise wisdom when it comes to drinking wine because it turns out you can have too much of a good thing. You can have too much joy, potentially. I mean, wine can dull our perceptions. It can make us more prone to sin. It can even destroy us if we abuse it. And, and probably all of us know somebody who's had a life that's been destroyed by alcohol. Drinking wine can be this amazingly wonderful thing, but sometimes God calls us to abstain, uh, especially with people like John the Baptist and Nazareth. They took a vow not to drink. And he calls us to be wise in our consumption of alcohol, in our consumption of wine. So it shouldn't surprise us that God compares wine to sexual love and vice versa in Scripture. As with wine, God celebrates the gift of, of sexual love he's given to us, but he also calls us to, to focus our, our sexual energy, our, our sexual power, with wisdom so it ends up being life-giving for us and for others, rather than being destructive for us and for others. And today we're continuing our series that we've been in called God in Our Everything, based on Ken Shigematsu's book. And uh, I want to encourage you to consider, if you haven't got a copy of that, we've got a few copies left. You can talk to me after. I'd be glad to sell you one for 10 bucks, uh, or give you one if you can't afford it. But uh, we're, we're seeking to look to God in our everything, and that includes our sexuality. cool thing is, is contrary to stereotype, God is pro-sex. He's, very, he's got a very positive, very celebratory view of, of sexual love. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to, to celebrating sexual love in marriage called the Song of Solomon, or sometimes known as the Song of Songs. It's funny, uh, when I was dating Angel, um, I was more poetic and romantic in those days, I'm sure. This, this seems like it's fallen off a of part of my, my, my life skills, but um, I, uh, I remember on a, on a particular rainy date that we were on, I read to her from the Song of Solomon, and it was this, apparently, this very romantic moment. Um, and my wife just recently told our two teenage sons about this experience, and one of my sons was like, that's amazing, that's so cool, and he's like, it's as if he's now tucked out of, uh, away as part of his his dating tools for a, an opportune time somewhere in the future, which we told them they can start dating at 25, so that's still a ways away. Ah, to be a parent of teens. But listen to some of the poetry of Song of Songs. You have this man and this woman, and they're, they're speaking back and forth to one another. Once in a while, friends kind of chime into the, the poetry. But first, the woman speaking says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Then the man speaks. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Then the friends chime in. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Let me comment on, on that just a moment there. The, the woman says... Awake north wind and come south wind. She's using the image of, of wind in a way that suggests that the wind has this life-giving power and that sexual energy has this, 
kind of life-creating capacity. In, in the Scriptures, we know that wind or breath is often symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God or the wind of God. We see that illustrated in Genesis back in that creation poem. We see God gets His hands dirty, He scoops up the dust, He scoops up the dirt into His hands, He forms man, breathes into His nostrils, and you have the first human being, Adam. You know, and Adam, by the way, his name just simply means of the earth or of the dirt. And then in Ezekiel 37, there's this really cool passage where the prophet speaks and visions this valley filled with human bones, dry bones. It's kind of creepy in a way. But, but then the wind of God's Spirit blows on this valley and the, the bones begin to rattle and hum and they begin to join together. And if you can imagine, they form into human living beings complete with flesh and sinew and the whole, the whole ticket. They become alive. The woman in the song is suggesting that the wind of, of sexual energy is life-creating. But the woman speaks of a man coming into her garden and the garden is a poetic way for her to describe her body. He speaks in chapter 5 of the man of having drunk wine which is a way to, to say he's anticipating the pleasures of sex. We've talked about this idea in recent weeks of the trellis, which is this support structure, like you'd have in a, a, a vineyard, uh, where it would help cultivate and grow a vine and provide a structure for the flourishing. And we're talking about these rhythms and practices that help support our friendship with God. And, and Ken, as Ken Shigematsu pointed out, if you see in the trellis there, the word sexuality is actually in pretty small print. <laughs> he said he didn't design it that way. It was kind of by accident. But he suggested that should be much bigger and bolder because it has such a far more important place in our lives. Our sexuality is a big deal. It's a big part of what defines us. So today we're going to tackle this. We're going to explore God's purpose for sex and how we can channel our, our sexual energies in, in ways that give us life and others life in ways that honor God. And we're also going to talk about some actual practices that can help us flourish in our sexuality. Before we do that, why don't we just pause for a moment and pray. Father, we invite you, by your Spirit, to breathe on us this morning. Lord, deep down we want to be alive, we want to flourish, we want to grow, and we want to Honor our design. And I pray you would teach us, Lord, how to do that in this, this very loaded area. Give us grace. Uh, help us to listen and open our eyes to your truth. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about sex and its nature in 1 Corinthians 6. God says to us through Paul, this is quite a profound passage, by the way, uh, one of those passages that just seems to ring true, but I'll let you judge for itself. It says, do you not know that he, unites, he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul's writing how, how about, uh, about how in sex, God designed it such that two people become one. He makes an allusion to Genesis 2.24 where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
the reason uh, Paul says that a person who has a sex with a prostitute sins against their own body is because he understands that God, that this act of sex that God designed is profoundly a, a unifying act that connects people, both body and soul. Paul uh, understood that God designed sex so that when you take your clothes off when, with someone and unite with them sexually, there's really a power to that act that makes you want to take off the clothes of your heart with that person and unite with them in every way, in deep ways. And I know there's not people that see that this way, maybe even here this morning, that you, you, you think when I have sex, I'm just giving my body, I'm not, not giving my heart. But that's not the way God designed sex. He designed sex in such a way that we unite in every way in that act. So even if your mind's saying, it's just my body, your body's saying, I'm bonding with whoever it is. In fact, science backs this up. There are chemicals released when we are participating in sex, especially when we come to an orgasm, released in our body, and those chemicals bond us to that person. So even if in your mind we're saying, I'm not really bonding with you, the body's saying, I'm bonding with you. There's a movie uh, where Tom Cruise is dating a character for a while. He had a fling with a woman played by um, Cameron Diaz. And now he's trying to drop her. He's trying to get her out of, her, out of his life. And she responds by saying this. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? I'm pretty sure she wasn't quoting 1 Corinthians 6, but at an intuitive level, she understood that, that when you sleep together, you bond and your body makes a kind of promise. Erwin McManus, a uh, pastor I know, writes, there is no such thing as free sex. It always comes at a cost. With it, either you give your heart or you give your soul. You can have sex without giving love, but you can't have sex without giving a part of yourself. And so when God calls us to reserve sex for a lifelong covenant relationship, when God calls us to reserve sex for marriage, he's not doing it to diminish our experience, but so that we kind of honor how we're made, we honor our design, and so that we would flourish in every way we're meant to. When you have sex with someone that you're not committed to, there, there are times when, when you will feel more vulnerable than you intended to, you'll be, feel more attached, it gets complicated, and, and some of you know that feeling of regret or, or shame. There may be those of you this morning who wish you'd heard this message a long, long time ago. Perhaps you've done things you regret. Or because of some violation or abuse, there's just, um, just a whole lot of pain around this whole sex deal. Let me say this. The wonderful thing about knowing Jesus is that through him, God can make all things new. He can do that. I mean, this week, um, I, I talked to somebody who expressed their, their great regret and shame over their sexual history, and I was able to say to them, you don't have to carry that load. You don't have to bear that load anymore. You can give that to Jesus, because in him, you can have a, a brand new start. You can, you, can, you can move on in a whole new way, a whole new path. And, and I, I, I think this is so clear that this does not have to be the defining story about you. You can be made new in God. And I so love that about God. I love that, you know, in my own life, in my own experience. And I'm so hopeful for you in, in your life as well. I love this passage from Ezekiel 36 where it says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. 
And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's just, it's just great hope in those words. Amen? Um, in, the, in the chapter on uh, God and my everything, on, on sexuality, Ken Shimatsu wrote about Yellowstone National Park. And, and I perked up when I heard about that uh, because uh, I've been there a couple times. But he wrote how back in 1988, they experienced a devastating forest fire there. Uh, it, it actually destroyed huge parts of the park. And uh, my wife and I were newly married. We were traveling through Yellowstone not long after that forest fire had occurred. And all you saw was stumps and, and dirt and, and ash and soot. It was a pretty destruction, lots of destruction. But then, as some of you know, we visited, as a family, uh, Yellowstone this, this last summer, and, and we saw how much recovery there's been in Yellowstone. Um, forest rangers kept talking about the recovery that's happened, and the, the vegetation, and the trees have come back, and there's flowers, and, and beauty has been recovered in many, many ways. And Ken South said how, in a manner of speaking, Yellowstone was re-virginized. I like that. And so it can be for us. If we have been dirty or compromised in some way sexually, we can invite the rain of God, the, the water of God to cleanse us. We can invite him to, to shine on us, and we can be made beautiful again. It really, with God, there is always hope because like that, that song by, by Gungor says, he makes beautiful things out of dust. He can make beautiful things out of us. I love that he does that. I, uh, I do know, though, that the teaching that God uh, reserves sexual intercourse for marriage seems there, there are those that believe it's so outdated, so antiquated, so crazy. But here's the thing, it's not, not just Christianity, but all the major world religions that teach that, that sex is intended for marriage. Even in cultures that we would consider very primitive, those cultures have taboos around sexual behavior because they kind of know in their gut that, that sexual energy is powerful and that it needs to be respected. Our culture is one of the few in human history that has no taboos or very few taboos around sexual behavior. And, and honestly, we're paying the price for it in all kinds of brokenness and heartbreak as a result. So the question is, really, this morning, how do we move towards a healthy sexuality? I want to talk about three practices, three practical approaches that we can take that can lead us towards a more healthy approach sexually. And, and these are probably a surprise in some ways, but they're, they're these three. Fasting, friendship, and fruit-bearing. First possibility is fasting. There are those who, um, you know, maybe don't, have never fasted or tried it before. Fasting is simply going without food for a period of time, often a 24-hour period or something like that. Uh, it's something that we find in Scripture. Jesus talked talk about fasting. I know that those, there are those who can't fast from food. might be a health issue. But I know those who fast regularly, once a week or, or once a month or so, and it's part of my own spiritual rhythm. Fasting takes some getting used to really does. The first time you fast, it can be very, very difficult. You find yourself maybe grumpier or grumblier, something like that. But, but fasting, when you get used to it, can be a gift. It's like you're giving your digestive system a rest, and, and your spiritual perception can grow, and your discernment and, and your prayer life can be enhanced, and so forth. It can be a gift. Now, what does fasting have to do with sex? Well, here's the thing. Fasting is a way to develop your spiritual muscles, because Learning to say no is a spiritual muscle that grows stronger with use. 
saying no. It's not something we know a lot about in our culture. With God, you say no, not just for the sake of saying no. You say no so you can say yes to something else, something better, something greater. As you fast and say no to food, you're going to find yourself be able to say no in other areas of your life so you can say yes to that better thing. You might not just fast from food. Um, I know that there are other things we can fast from in terms of the message today. We might consider fasting from media, from screen. I know, I know those who, who fast regularly from screen, and on their Sabbath day, they don't turn on the television, and they put aside the smartphone, and they decide that that's not going to be a day where they go on the Internet. Potentially very appropriate to us in our day. Compared to the 1970s, where we had the average person had something like 350 media messages uh, heading our way, today, apparently, according to research, we have more like 5,000 media messages heading our way on a daily basis. A lot of those with sexual overtones. So fasting for media at times may be a way for us to pursue purity. And many of you are single, and, and you, you might think that if you get married, there'll be no sexual temptation. Well, that's just not true, right? The fact is, temptation comes even when you're married. For married folks, you need to train yourself to be able to say no to sex outside your marriage. You need to train yourself to say no to pornography and so on. So it's, it's about cultivating the ability to, to say no to something so you can say yes to something else. That's what fasting is, and that can be relevant to all of us. So there's fasting, and secondly, there's also friendships. Uh, we talked about this last week, the power of spiritual friendships and community. And, and friendship is just an anchor practice in our life with God. And friendships, whether you're single or, or married, can foster a healthier sexuality. Ken Shigematsu tells the story of a guy named Ray, not his real name. But he and Ken uh, were talking about this whole area of sex and sexuality, and he told Ken his experience. How one day... Guy in Vancouver, he was feeling quite restless, and uh, he just wanted to go downtown to a bar in Vancouver and have a one-night stand. But this guy was a Christian, and he thought that probably wasn't a good idea. Good for him. He said, instead, I went to a dinner party, had some really good food and wine and some great conversation, and it was just, he says, a really amazing, fulfilling time. And as he looked back, he said, because of that time with my friends, the sexual temptation just faded. There's something about a, a healthy connection with friends that can, can cause temptation, if not to totally go away, at least decrease. Where, where there is a lack in our life, where there is loneliness, sometimes we pursue excess. So friendship, whether we're single or married, can be a, a healthy way to foster a life-giving sexuality. Uh, last week, I, I talked about local author and businessman uh, David Bentall and his book on friendship. In that, that book, he shares the, the story of a friend of his. David's friend recounts this story. He says, I had been resolutely faithful to my wife and had no intention of being unfaithful. But on one occasion, he found himself on a business trip, sitting uh, on a plane uh, to another country beside a very attractive and alluring woman on a flight, and they hit it off. And he writes... When we landed, she offered to chauffeur me to my hotel. And by the time we reached it, we'd arranged to meet that evening. We went for dinner and found a club with great dance music. It felt intoxicating, and all too soon, midnight had come and gone. We hailed a taxi, and she squeezed as close as possible next to me. Did she want to meet again? She nodded. She moved to kiss me on the lips, but I reluctantly turned so that my cheek received the memorable caress. 
When he gets back to the hotel, he says, my body was on fire for her and my mind led the charge. When I finally fell asleep, clothes still on, it was 4 a.m. The alarm shrilled at 7.30 a.m. to begin what was supposed to be a day of business for my largest client. But I had something more important to do. Grabbing my electronic pocket diary, I plugged in the name of one of my buddies from the men's Bible study group with whom I met weekly for the past three years. I needed that friendship now. I was calling just one of them, but really it didn't matter which one. I knew they'd all be there for me to act as the powerful shield that I could have used the night before. I needed one of my buddies to point me back in the right direction. I couldn't reach one, nor another, nor another. No luck. But by the time I got the third phone number, I didn't even need to dial it. Just the act of acknowledging the authority my friends had over me in my marriage, David's friend explains, brought him back to a place of clarity. And he later said that, that this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 it had never become more alive to him where, where God says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to, to man, common to all human beings. And when you are tempted, God will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And, and God often provides a way out of temptation through a trusted friend who also wants to honor Jesus. That kind of friendship circle is important to you, whether you are married or whether you are single. I shared last week how I came back from being away at college with the determination to, to form deeper friends. What I didn't tell you was that this particular friend of mine, that we, when we met and gathered, one of the topics we talked about initially was sex and sexual temptation. We were both about 20 years old, and this was an area in our lives that we really struggled with, and we were trying to honor God with it, but we really struggled, and so... That was a, the, the first couple of times we met. It was a big part of our conversation. But was, what was interesting it, as, as, that, as we met week after week after week was sexual temptation became smaller and smaller and smaller part of our conversation. In fact, to the end where we didn't really bring it up all that often because just my, my sense was just the fact of having those friends made it so much easier not to even think about those areas or at least find that you had support in it and, and we became stronger together. Um, so there's a power in friendship and a possible actual accountability in this area as well, where you can actually have those people that you can call up and say, I'm struggling. And, and knowing this, it means to actually choose good friends, right? Like you need somebody who's actually going in the same direction and will hold, hopefully point you in a, the, the same direction. I want to encourage you to take care over who you take counsel from. Those, those guys I met with, we were all focused in the same direction. Wanting sexual purity. Now, for those of you who are married this morning, newsflash, and you know this already, marriage is hard at times. Marriage can be really hard at times. Uh, there can be seasons where you feel both disillusioned and dissatisfied. It can be easy uh, to, to gripe about our spouses and, or want to gripe about our spouses, especially to our friends. Can I give you a caution this morning? Raise up your complaints. Take care that you raise up your complaints to the people who will hold you up and also your marriage up. That they won't sabotage your marriage. That they won't jump to the conclusion, dump the bomb. Right? You've heard that. You've seen it in movies. Not someone who will point you to greener pastures. I really, I really love that quote and that saying. I think it's true that 
The grass tends to be greener where you water it. And then conversely, be the kind of friend who will lift up others' marriages and others' purity. When we get married, or if we are married, we need friends who will hold up our marriages and who will encourage us to be faithful. So fasting and, and friendship can foster healthy sexuality. And, and then I want to talk about fruit bearing. Fruit bearing sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Uh, but really, we're, we're talking about this life-creating power of, of our sexuality. And, and I've often asked God, these prayers of a young teen, especially a new Christian, I'm going like, God, why did this drive have to be so powerful? I know many of you have prayed that prayer. and Some of you have prayed, take it away. But you know one of my, one of my hunches uh, as to why God made it so powerful? I think we are potentially so self-absorbed as people. That, that can be our, our default position. That God gave, needed to give us a drive to push us out of ourselves. Otherwise, we'd be very self-sufficient. He gave us sexual energy in order that we would actually be interested in others. We'd actually move out of, our, out of the isolation of ourselves. That's part of what it means to then he moves us into community and he also moves us into making a difference in the world. And it doesn't, our, our, our sexual drive doesn't have to just be about the sexual act. Our sexual drive can actually move us into bearing fruit in the world. It's actually a very, very cool thing. Last Sunday I talked about this National Geographic study that, that tracks people that went into their hundreds and, 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 and flourished in those ages. There's actually communities in the world where, where they tend to to flourish more than others. One of, the, one of them is uh, Okinawa, Japan. I want you to check out this guy. His name's, I'll get it wrong here, but Sakichi Yohara. He's on the screen. Guess how old he is? He's 102. And he's still teaching students karate. I, I, it's amazing. He's 102. He, but he has purpose for life, a reason for living. He's bearing fruit in, others, in the lives of others by teaching and by mentoring younger folk. Um, Richard Rohr uh, is a well-known writer. He's a celibate priest who will never in all likelihood become a biological father uh, because he's a Franciscan who has taken a vow of celibacy, really in a sense of a vow of singleness, but also a vow not to have sex. Yet his reason for living is to write and, and to speak words that would be life-giving to others. And, and if you've ever read Richard Rohr, he... He has a capacity to bless people with his words. They lift people up. He's fruit-bearing. Another fruit-bearer, I think of my mother. Look at myself. I'm part of her fruit. But she's no longer bearing fruit in, in those ways, biologically. But she's been recently made a widow. She was married for 55 years and lost her husband a couple of years ago. What's remarkable to, to me as I observe my mom's life and as I have conversations with her every week, uh, she'll, she's not living a lonely existence even though she lives in a house alone. She's made a decision as a widow to, to bless her community. And my mom every Thursday afternoon goes to the local nursing home and she looks for those who have no friends or no family and she goes and visits them week after week after week to be an encouragement with them. And she tells me about these people. My mom was 86 years old. She could be in that home. But there she is. She's, she's sowing and, and, and spreading encouragement and good news to all the people she meets there. Um, I, I love the fact that I keep hearing this theme come out, especially in the last year or so, after she got over her initial mourning. It seems now she's got a ministry. She's got her eye open for widows in the community, new widows. 
women who lost their husbands. And about a month after they've passed on, she gives them a call and invites them over for lunch. And they talk about what it's like to be a widow. And she listens. And she says, I know what you're going through. I understand. And that's my mom. She's, she's 86, and she's decided that she's going to, to put her energy into fruit bearing. I think it's so fantastic. And we have a saying around here at Hillside we picked up along the way. If you're not dead, you're not done. My mom's a good example of that. Um, and so through fasting and, and through friendships and, and through fruit bearing, we can cultivate a healthier sexuality. As I said, God and, and the Bible have this very uh, high view of sexual love and marriage. Let me also say this, and I don't say it often enough, is that God also has a very high view of singleness, arguably even a higher view than marriage in some senses. According to the Apostle Paul, who was once married and then became single, and, and, and he said as a single person, it seems to me that I have an opportunity here for a more single-hearted devotion to God and to the work of his kingdom. Christopher West, a Catholic thinker who's done some wonderful thinking on sexuality, he says, Our sexuality calls us to give ourselves away in life-giving love. The celibate person, maybe the single person, doesn't reject this call. He or she just lives it in a different way. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, some of you know that name, he lived a single, celibate life. Uh, he was engaged to be married. He was betrothed but never married and was executed in, in Nazi Germany by the Nazis. He, he lived 40 years as a celibate and had a, a massive impact in his life. He says this, he says, The essence of celibacy, the essence of chastity, is not the suppressing of lust, but the total orientation of one's life toward a goal. Now let me ask you, how can God both affirm singleness and also at the very same time affirm marriage? Here's how. Neither marriage nor, nor singleness are ultimate. They both point to a greater union that those of us who know Jesus will someday have in the world to come. Uh, a union that will be so spiritually united with Jesus that it's, I couldn't even begin to describe it to you. It will be so filling and, and so complete like nothing we will experience is experience in this world. Let me say this to conclude before we pray. This whole topic is difficult to talk about. And I wasn't looking forward to this on our whole series, but so necessary. <laughs> Why do we need to talk about this? It's such a big part of who we are, and God created it for our good, and he created it for our health and for our flourishing. It's a, it's a key part of our trust that will support our life with God. And I want to now lead in a time of prayer and reflection, give you a chance to respond to God. And we're going to then conclude with a video clip that I believe will remind us of the great hope that we have in Jesus. So would you bow your heads and let's pray together. It is truly my deep hope and prayer that if you are here this morning, that you would know God's deep and profound love for you and his desire to be one with you in this world and in the world to come, in the kingdom of heaven. And if that's your desire to be there, to, to be one with God, why not even now ask God to prepare you for that life and to cleanse you and to purify you? There may be some things God is calling you to say no to. 
if you're struggling with pornography, would you say no to that? I know it's not so simple and not easy, but with the help of God, would you confess that to a trusted friend, a pastor, a counselor, and put that behind you as a way of cleansing yourself with God's help? If you're here this morning and you're engaged in an affair, you're married and you're in an emotional affair, or you're single connecting with a married person, emotionally or physically, would you resolve to break that off? Confess that to someone you trust who loves God and and put that behind you. If you're here and you're sleeping with someone whom you're not married to, would you say in your heart before God, I'll be pure and I'll save myself sexually until marriage? And if that's in your heart, I want you to hear God's word Again, through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my ways. And then we pray that God would breathe his spirit on you and make you pure and give you the power to live the beautiful life he's always intended for you.